Well, I am continuing in a series that, that I've started. It's called The Corruption of Divine Purpose. And this is the fourth week. And it's just um, an expository teaching on Proverbs 6, uh, verses 16 through 19. It's, it's kind of a rare passage. There's only a few times you'll find in Scripture where God just comes right out and says, I hate this stuff. I hate these things. And so it's a list. And it's a good reminder for us to know these, these are what, these are things God definitely has clearly said you need to run from, be far from, remove from your life. And for us, it helps us to walk through and go, well, if these things are, are things that God hates, then what am I supposed to do instead of this? What is the response? What is the opposite of that? So let's read our key passage here tonight in Proverbs 6, starting in verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and that's the one we're going to hit tonight, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who declares lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. One of the things I've talked about as I've shared this over the weeks, and you can catch up on the podcast of this series, is that it's kind of a poetic um, reflection of the Lord's creation only in the opposite. It's decreation. We know God created the earth in six days and he created man on day six and then he, and, and then he rested. And so the Lord's desire for us is to par partner with him in creation through his process and rest and rule with him. And this passage is showing us this is the enemy's strategy to undo, unravel the pattern of creation, the pattern of, of resting and ruling and co-creating with the Lord. And so the enemy wants to use these six corruptions of divine purpose to enforce his kingdom. Um, instead of resting and ruling, then what happens? We end up living in tension. We end up living without peace. We end up living in strife against one another, against our neighbors, and uh, just look around at the world. They're doing good at just doing all the things that God hates apart from him, apart from his redemptive purpose and love. Amen, somebody? And so the enemy doesn't want us to realize there is a God-ordained purpose for all these things in this list, for our eyes, for our words, for our hands. We're going to talk about hands a lot tonight. For our heart affections, for our feet, and for our steps, and for our direction. And what we need to do is re-engage with this idea that there's a divine purpose for all these things. There's a divine purpose for our witness, your witness, your testimony. And then all of these things should flow together in unity with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that's why the end of this passage, the result is strife and discord among the brethren. Because why? Because if we do these things, the opposite of this, what the Lord wants, there's unity among the body. There's unity among the brethren. So it's a choice we have every day, just by way of finishing up review here before we dig into new territory. And it's the idea of are we going to give ourselves glory or are we going to sacrifice and surrender to the Lord? Are we going to fulfill our divine purpose or let, as this list shows, the enemy corrupt those things? He wants to come. He wants to corrupt. And you know, the kingdom is incorruptible. Uh, in this earth, things, things get corrupted. Things get rusty, Jesus said, where moth can destroy. But the kingdom is uncorruptible. We want to embrace and be a part of the kingdom. So here's a simple th uh, kind of principles to remember. 
that things that are fed and nourished will grow. If you love to tend the garden, you realize that. Um, if you nourish it and grow it, or sometimes if you have weeds, it's because they're getting, they're getting fed to. You might not be intentionally growing them. But anything that's growing and healthy is somehow in a condition for it to grow. So when there's two competing elements, there's the things that God hates, right? And there's the things that God loves. Whatever you feed, whatever you feed into, whatever you sow to is going to grow. And the healthy thing should eliminate the negative thing. It's awesome to see that happen in my heart as I've rehabbed it. And as I get more and more healthy grass go, more and more of those weeds, they just don't have a place to grow. So that's, that's an exciting thing to see. So when God things are growing and conditions are kept so that God things keep growing, then the enemy's hindered. Praise God for that. You know, the, the, it's, it's an offensive strategy. If you're continually growing in the kingdom and in things of God, the enemy is, is going to be kept at bay pretty strategically the way God uh, designed that. Isn't that cool? And so the whole idea is to just be aware, God, what do you want to grow? What should I sow to? What should I be investing in? And God, what do, you, what do you hate? What is an abomination to you? How can I steer far and clear from those things? So we just have to keep before us uh, what, what's going to help us grow and what's going to hinder our growth. So let's go back to the, to the passage here, and I'm going to read up until what we're going to focus on tonight. I'm really excited about this because I think we're going to see some things we haven't seen in a while, and God's going to refire us on this. So it says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Could you just lift up your hands and just look at them? Look at your hands. I want to make sure everyone has hands. Joe, you got hands? Let me see your hands. Yeah, yeah, there you go. He's got hands. Okay, I just want to make sure everybody has hands. We're going to talk about your hands tonight. Something I mentioned, uh, this word abomination, we don't necessarily see or hear it every day, but it means this, a thing that causes disgust or hatred. God is literally disgusted when his purpose has been allowed to be corrupted. It's offensive to him. It's atrocious. It's disgraceful. It's absolutely wickedness and pure evil. And isn't it amazing how easy, how close we can be to these things and not be bothered by them? Maybe we need to remind ourselves how atrocious they are to the Lord, how much he hates sin and how much of an offense it is to God. So if we go back to the first shedding of innocent blood, how many of you know who that was? What happened? Genesis, right away, Cain killed Abel, right? That's what happened. Sending them back to Bible school, Pastor Ralph. No one knew that one. And so Cain killing Abel, it was the first corruption of divine purpose of the hands. And what it was was just an extension and reflection of original sin that had started in the garden. It was first, now God, we're going to disobey. We know better to do with our lives than what you would tell us. And now it's taking matters into their own hands very literally. And so there was murder. There was the first murder. And it was the shedding of innocent blood. And God said he hates it. And think about the, the, the reality of that. So God has created us to tend the garden of God. And Cain was a gardener. And so he flat out did the opposite of his assignment. 
Instead of tending, caring for, growing, nurturing, planting, sowing, cultivating, giving life, the hands of Cain became the expression of the corrupted heart. The hands of Cain turned from life-giving to life-ending. And all to eliminate the competition. Jealousy, ambition, strife. The end result of the six things and the seven that God hates. Pride, self-promotion, the selfish desire he had to be accepted on his own terms and not coming to God on God's terms caused the first murder. And those desires still exist at the root of all evil in the world today. My Lord, we turn on the evening news and it's New York City. How many people shot? How many people murdered? It's right in our backyard. And so this sin in particular, this is another deep teaching. We won't go into this depth tonight. But when this sin happens, it corrupts both the individual and the territory. The shedding of innocent blood corrupts the land, literally. The Bible says that the blood of Abel still cries out from the territory. And so in the, in, in the U.S., the blood of the unborn babies that are murdered, they cry out. That blood is crying out for justice here, and it's an abomination to God, and it's offensive to him, and it grieves uh, his heart. And so it should grieve us. And when man tries to live on their own terms, well, this child is an inconvenience to my life, and it's a choice, and I have a career, and, and well, I don't know if this child will affect my health, or, or well, all the various reasons, none of them hold accountability to a holy God that says, I value life, and life begins at conception. And if that life is ended by the hands of someone else, that is the shedding of innocent blood. Another thing I thought was pretty fascinating as I studied this passage, it's a decreation narrative. It's a, it's a devolution of God's life-giving creative uh, process, but it also mirrors the downfall of King David. I thought it was pretty cool when I saw that. If you realize that Solomon, his son, wrote the Proverbs, and probably this one, that he would be very well acquainted with the pain that the sin of his father caused him and caused his generations and his siblings. And so think about this. It's the same progression. David, supposed to be this anointed king, this honorable king, really a picture and a type of Messiah, but his eyes moved from staring steadfastly into the Father, into pure worship, into just love and adoration. And his eyes moved from that down from the beauty of the Lord to the problems around me and my needs and the desires of the flesh and self-pity. And eventually it led to the sin of adultery. And then it, it eventually led to the shedding of innocent blood to cover the sin. How fascinating is it that Jesus' innocent blood had to be shed to cover our sin? It's just a flip. And I'm so uh, blessed by all the types and shadows and the little breadcrumbs we can see if we just read the story. Jesus and his redemption, redemptive plan is everywhere in there. And so David really filled the decreation narrative. And thank God that he repented. He had a heart after the Lord, but things weren't the same. Of course, he paid the price for that. But he shed innocent blood. And 
it kind of sets up the stage and creates that tension. Oh, God, if only one day you would put truly an anointed Messiah on the throne, one who would be without sin, one who could literally save the people from their sin. And it's amazing because we see from the other side of cross that that has taken place for us. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. I remember how Pastor Walt used to say, the blood of the lamb, it's fresh slain. It's as though it just happened for you. That blood was just spilled. It's as it's though those whips on his back and the torture and the lashes and the blood just happened. And it's being sprinkled on the mercy seat for us. Praise God. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Thank you, Lord. So Psalm 24, 3 and 4 says this, Who may ascend unto the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? One who has clean hands and a pure heart. One big truth that I get out of this is that heart purity precedes hand purity, right? If your heart is pure, then your hands can be pure, but you can't get it done the other way around. In the Old Testament, there's so many regulations regarding ceremonial cleansing, uh, washing of hands. That's great. We want to do that, right, to avoid uh, infection and so forth. Uh, but culturally, culturally then, not just the people of God, but the ceremonial baths was something that they did to try to purify themselves but they truly couldn't purify themselves. It's only when your heart is made clean before the Lord that your hands are pure. So the Lord was the pure and holy sacrifice. And when we repent, we come into the holy place now by Jesus, the new and living way. Because of his innocent blood, then our hearts are clean. And then we can set our hands to the work that he has set aside for us. You might say, Pastor James... I haven't committed murder with my hands. Well, I thank God for that, that no one here has. I'm glad for that. But when our heart embraces self above others, when our heart sins, like we're predisposed to doing, our whole body is impure. If you're guilty of one thing, you're guilty of it all. Amen, somebody. Just like Paul wrote to the church, the one individual that was living in sin and the church knew about it and they didn't address it and they didn't correct it he said it corrupts the whole body you you will pay for that so in your life in your body sin unrepentant sin ongoing sin is going to have an effect on your physical body and it's going to have an effect on the work of your hands it's going to have an effect on your relationships and everything that you touch how many of you realize your life touches, even if you don't touch someone with your hands, everything you do, everyone you know is touched by you. And so also in some indirect ways, we're guilty of shedding innocent blood. I touched on this a minute ago about um, the sanctity of life. But if we fail to stand up for righteousness, if we fail to defend the voice of the innocent, then we become culpable of those sins. And so far be it from us, far be it from the church or the individuals in the church. That's why we have to speak out. We have to speak out for the unborn. We have to speak up for the cause of those that are being treated unjustly. Amen. So what is the purpose? What is the divine purpose for our hands? Christine, if you want to slide me a tissue box. 
Got that little annoying allergy thing happening. What is the divine purpose for our hands not to shed innocent blood? Or what are some of the divine purposes of our hands? Thank you. I'm glad you asked. Do you, how many of you know that phrase, idle hands are the devil's workshop? Do you remember that one? Probably don't hear it much anymore. But it, literally, it's a, it's, it's a paraphrase of Proverbs. I think one of, the, one of the paraphrases even writes it out that way. It's basically saying that when your hands aren't set about to doing something productive, then you're given to laziness or being, be, laziness or being slothful. So if we fail to set our hands to what God wants us to, then they're kind of available for the enemy. Like, yeah, let me get in there and see, see what I can do with the hands of the righteous, right? So, on the contrary, our hands are, are to produce the evidence of covenant prosperity. Listen, church, your hands are to produce or, or show the evidence of covenant prosperity. Our hands are to show that we are flourishing, that the kingdom of God is multiplying, that people are being healed, that we are commissioning and sending, that we are waging war, that we are praising, that we are worshiping, right? That we're creating, that we're releasing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That's powerful. I had you look at your hands. Did you know your hands are supposed to do all that? Deuteronomy 28.8 says, The Lord will command the blessing for you in your barns and in everything that you put your hand to, and he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. What a powerful covenant promise. Everything you set your hand to. And if you listen to the Lord and say, God, what do you want me to touch? It's supposed to prosper. Deuteronomy 30, verse 9, and just the, the, the last last part of that there. I put A, I think I meant B or whatever. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in every work of your hand. Every work of your hand. Every work. Everything that you touch. How, how are we doing at living up to that? That's a, fa that's a faith stretch for some of us, right? But it should be in our mind and in our heart and out of our mouth, God, when I bless this, when I touch this today, you said it will prosper abundantly. Amen? When I go to work, when I type this letter, when I dig this ditch, when I, when I do what I do as unto you, you said you will prosper it abundantly. And there should be a difference between you and the heathen who's your coworker. It should be remarkably, it should be frustratingly different to them. So much so that they finally go, what is your deal? They're just, oh, I'm glad you asked. Let me introduce you to Jesus, the creator of all the heavens and the earth. And let me show you how he wants to bless the work of your hands. Psalm 90:17. may the kindness of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. It's so important. The psalmist said it twice there. So Psalm 90:17. a lot of the psalms were, were songs sung by the church, by the people of Israel down through, through the years. And they're always recounting their story and telling their story. And this was a cry for deliverance out of captivity. If only, God, your mercy would shine on us again and you would confirm that you create us for something other than slavery. 
you've created us for something other than serving at the beck and call of, of a heathen nation that we're held captive to, something other than just trying to figure out how we can live apart from our land, from the land that you created us to. Yes, confirm the work of our hands, Lord. Bless the work of our hands. I would challenge you that that should be your prayer as well. Ask God for his kindness and favor and for his mark of confirming signs, wonders, miracles as a church when we send missions, missionaries, when we plant churches, our, our Las Vegas campus, when we engage in discipleship. Our theme this year is living on purpose. And it is with purpose and intent that these things should be fruitful and should be blessing as we set our hand to. Say, Lord, I am purposeful in this. I am setting my hand to this in our evangelism, everything that we do. And it's in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And listen, the psalm says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Did you know that's basically saying that's the picture of your life until you come into the full light of eternity. It's a fallen world we live in. Sin has cursed this world. But you carry the light and the peace and the presence of God in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. And as long as we're walking through this, we're going to light up everything we touch, right? We're going to light it up. We're going to anoint people. We're going to see people healed. That's what your hands are for. It's the evidence of his kindness all about us. God should be growing what we set our hands to. And if not, if what we are setting our hands to isn't growing, then we should ask ourselves this question. First of all, are we doing what God desires? I'd say go home tonight and have a family meeting with your family if it's just you. You, Jesus, Father, and the Holy Spirit. Am I doing what you desire? And secondly, the second part of the question, am I doing it the way you desire? We have... A saying around here, are we doing right things and are we doing things right? Because you need both. It's not just en enough to do right things. If we don't do the right things in the right way, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. It's ineffective, right? It's double-minded. God says if you're double-minded, you're not going to get much what you asked for. Is this too hard for you tonight? No. Are we doing right things? Are we doing it the way he desires? Our hands are made for working, building, and creating. And I'm excited to give you a little teaser. Pastor Ralph is going to be teaching on God blessing the work of our hands, right? That's coming up in, in our wisdom series that's coming up. So that's going to be good. So I'll touch basically on that briefly tonight. Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and tend it. Tend it. Uh, we get this idea that, like the Garden of Eden was just some kind of euphoric, you know, place where they just laid around and were lazy. It, that's not the case at all. There was work to be done. Um, it wasn't the, the work of uh, the cursed ground after the fall, but it was to be productive and to work and to create and to tend. Exodus 35, 31 through 33. This is a powerful a couple passages here. And he has filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all craftsmanship to create designs for working in gold, in silver, and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood so as to perform in every inventive work. Listen, I don't know if you're crafty. I don't know if you like to work with wood. But just it's kind of in us the way God created us 
take some time out and try it sometime. Just build something, do something creative. Because the spirit of God is in you and the spirit of wisdom and revelation is in you to create something, right? Dream big, pick up a hobby, try painting, try. My daughter is um, consumed by Lego. And there are entire people from age, age five to 95 that spend a ton of time creating with Lego. And I think there's something inside of us that God says, I want you to build. I want you to be an architect of something. I want you to see something come to life. First uh, Chronicles 22, 15. Moreover, there are many workmen with you, stone cutters, masons of stone and carpenters, and all of them are skillful in every kind of work of the gold, silver, bronze, and iron. There is no limit. Arise and work. Arise and work, and may the Lord be with you. This is a picture of the church, and I'm glad we're running that course on how to figure out what you're supposed to do. But we all should be contributors to the temple of God, building the body of Christ in some way. Whatever you are called to set your hand to, we do it together, and it's beautiful. Amen? Okay, enough about that. This is the one I'm excited about. Did you know your hands were created for clapping? We did some of it tonight. Yes. You want to clap. Our hands are to be instruments of praise and worship, specifically joyful worship. Powerful. Psalm 47.1. Come, everyone, clap your hands. Shout to God with joyful praise. My heart cries for the Sunday morning when not just a few, but every single person from the front to the back get the revelation that when we put our hands together and shout to God, it creates such a raucous atmosphere of worship that glorifies the Lord, but it also serves the kingdom of darkness notice that there is a passionate group of people worshiping Jesus it's powerful. Clapping in worship isn't just to keep time with music, and I, and I love it. Sometimes it's hard for us because we have the real time in our ear, and then, then the congregation slowly drifts off. But don't let that stop you. Please clap. We want you to clap anyway. And, and for the most part, it's supposed to be two and four, Pastor Ralph. Two and four. That's where you're supposed to clap, right? You know, one, two, three, four, one, two. That's where the groove is. All right, so we'll, we'll try to help you. I saw this, uh, this little video of, of a really genius musician, and he was playing this tune, and the audience started clapping on the wrong beat on one and four, and he quick threw a five, four bar in there and shifted it, so then they, they were on two and four. I'm like, that is like mad skill, like just to do that. I would have loved to have seen that. So clapping, um, it's exaltation. It's a form of worship. We honor something when we clap. When, when you clap for somebody who's done something good, it's a, it's a way to honor them. The, the Bible also describes clapping in scorn and derision, a mocking clap, a clap of dishonor and repudiation. So our clapping in worship, just think of it as, as a two-edged sword. It's doing two things at once. It's the exaltation of the Holy One and, and the repudiation of the defeated foe, the devil. <laughs> you are done for. You are no good. You've been defeated. 
right? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Almighty God. It's percussive. When you clap, it sends a sound wave into the atmosphere. And sound waves are invisible. We don't see them. We can feel them. My daughter did an experiment, a science experiment. She had a little, she was supposed to light a candle, and she had an empty water bottle, and she had to just tap the bottom. And this invisible force just just snuffed out that that flame. And that's how powerful things that travel through the air that we don't see. And I know that music when we sing and percussive, percussive noises when we make them, there's a point where the realm of the spirit and that all mix together. And there's warfare that's going on. And we want to reignite our passion and understanding that it is our responsibility to, to war in worship with our hands as we clap. Also, um, so the Lord had Ezekiel prophesy and clap his hands, declaring the sword of judgment against the people of Israel. No weapon formed against me will prosper. I denounce you in the name of Jesus. You are defeated, devil. We should get intensely prophetic, symbolically clapping. And I say, do it in your house. You sent some funky spirit trying to get on you just like, oh, no. Nope, not, not happening. Get out of here on your way. Just do it. Just, it's a point of contact. It's activating something you need to do. Because the enemy is pulling out all the stops. You need to use every weapon God has given you to defeat him. And so I just say it's underutilized weapon of worship. And I'm exhorting you. You're, you're, you're the choir. I know I'm preaching to the choir. But can we just be good examples in our Sunday corporate worship uh, to, to turn up the intensity and clapping? And look, can I just be honest? Your clapper wears out too, too soon. You're like, hallelujah, hallelujah. That's great. What is the next song coming? No. Keep it going. Get your time clock like, I'm going to clap for like five minutes. Like, just do it. Like, get it out there. So that's clapping. Praise God. Our hands are made for lifting. Made for lifting. There's a word for praise. A Hebrew word, yada. And it means to revere or worship with extended hands. It's one of seven very powerful Hebrew words for praise. And do you know it's found over 111 times in Scripture? Now, if you're looking for it just to say uplifted hands, you're going to miss it because that word gets translated praise. 111 times, Psalm 67.3. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise yada you. May all the peoples Praise you with extended hands. Psalm 145.10. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol yada you. Psalm 145.10. All your works praise you. Did I just read that one? Did I read 67.3? Well, they say the same thing. Psalm 28.2 so excited I got lost. Hear the sound of my pleadings when I cry to you for help when I raise my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Psalm 134.2, lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless the Lord. And Paul writes to us, therefore I want the men in every place, and yes I'm saying men, especially the men, to lift up those holy hands without anger and dispute. What does a church 
look like with unanimous, unified, uplifted hands in worship. Think about the power of clapping and shouting and think about the power that happens when we raise our hands. It's an underutilized weapon of worship in the body of Christ. And I know your shoulders get sore. Just keep them up there and give them a spell and then put them back up. Keep them up. That's how you win the battle, right? Right? Moses had to have two guys come and keep his hands up. Keep them up. Keep them up. Sometimes you can't keep your hands up. You need someone else to help you get them up. But when our hands are uplifted, we vertically align with the Lord. It's as though we're a tree. Like, this is what the trees do. They extend up to their source of light and life. And so we're, we're aligning ourselves vertically with the Lord. And we show that we want to be a conduit of the atmosphere of heaven literally pulling through us. Now we know the kingdom of heaven is all around us, but there's, there's, there's a high and exalted heavens, right? And so we want heaven to come down. We need to be the lightning rod for heaven to come down. We need to be the conduit for that to happen in worship, right? And so simultaneously when you do this, and I know there's been teachings on this versus this and and you know, the TV screen and the Tim Hawkins thing. But just get them up there and know that God knows they're up there. And when they're up there, it's a giver and receiver. It's all the same thing. It's, it's going out and it's coming in. It's going out and it's coming in. It's just a cycle. It's just a cycle. Don't worry about, am I giving to the Lord now or am I receiving? No, just get your hands up there. Give to the Lord the praise that is due and allow him to move through you. And this atmosphere will change. I notice every time as I'm leading worship, we get to a place where I just say, can, can I just encourage everyone to lift up their hands? And then whoo, they go up and you just feel it. You feel the shift. It's a vulnerable position. Nobody fights like this. Come on, come on, I'm taking you on. You get clobbered, right? You get attacked. Well, we lift up. We say, it's not about me. I'm not defending myself here. I'm, I'm in a position, position, position of vulnerability before the Lord and before my brothers and sisters in the Lord. And I have nothing to hold back, to hold back. There are some people I see do this. I just wish they'd get, I just want to say, oh, just... Can I just come unfold your arms? I know that's comfortable, but can, can you just take that next step? We should pray before service that people get free. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, right? The Spirit of the Lord is there's liberty. Get free to worship the Lord with abandon. It's not a cultural, you know, I don't know what to say about that. I think we just need to get back to really doing biblical worship. Can, can somebody say amen? Our hands are made for deliverance and miracles and healing. You looked at your hands, right? That's to be a conduit for the miracles of God right there. It's not your hand that's doing it. But as a point of contact, that's supposed to take place. Mark 16, 18. They will lay hands on the sick and they will what? Recover. How many people are going to get healed that you don't touch? Probably zero. 
Well, you can pray for them. God can do what he wants, but you get my point. It says, lay hands on the sick and they will recover. If you can get close enough to put your hand on someone, get their permission or don't, whatever the Holy Spirit tells you to do, just get in there and touch in the name of Jesus. Be whole, right? There's something powerful that takes place. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. You have to lay hands on the sick. When you're fighting sickness in the home, when your children are sick, when a loved one is sick, any time that presents itself, touch them and say, God's word says, if I lay hands on you, you will recover in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Let's get back to doing what the Bible says to do, and let's get back to seeing what the Bible says we should see. Amen? Acts 19.11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. We're going to do a series on miracles, too. I'm excited about that one. Extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that now, I love how it shifts from the hands of Paul to this. So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. So this tells me that I don't literally have to touch someone all the time, but anything that I've touched or anything that my life touches, God is willing to be used as a conduit for his miracle working power. Think about that. Think about you had something in your house and say you brought a casserole over to, to some, you know, party or whatever. If we believe what God says, that means that the anointing and the power of God that is in you and on you, as soon as that thing gets in that place, maybe these people aren't believers. They touch that casserole dish and the power of God can heal them. See, our lives, everything we touch, we want to understand that we want it to be supercharged with faith. And the sobering thing about that is, well, are you accountable to live that way? Are you accountable to live that way uh, as a holy life, pure and set apart before God so that everything you do touch has the potential to be used by God, right? So our lives should touch people, diseases should leave, and evil spirits should leave. How many of you know some people that you can just tell something not good going on there? The enemy is having his way. Well, somehow make sure you're intentional about a pray, praying and believing and agreeing with these truths in scripture that say, hey, because I'm a part of their life, because I'm touching them, they can be delivered and then contend for that. So, Think about your life as an expression that results in other lives being touched. Do our lives show evidence that people have been built up by us? Are people encouraged by you? If they are, that means you're an encourager and you've touched them. Have they been tended to? Have they been nourished and grown? Are the people in your life on a path of growth? Are they healthy? Do they feel loved? Are they being freed from oppression? Are they being delivered? Has whatever sickness that has a hold on them been removed from their midst? I know I'm setting the bar high tonight because I believe God wants it to be high. God has given us time. How many of you have time? 24 hours a day, right? God has given us talent. You might think you don't have any, but the Bible says he gave you something. So you've got some talent. 
and he's given us treasure. Did you know, Pastor Ralph says it often, if you're, if you're here tonight, you're one of the most richest people in the world compared to most third world nations. So you got time, you got talent, you got treasure. What do you do with those things? You touch people. You touch people. Who are you touching with your treasure? Who are you touching with your time? Who are you touching with your talent? When we rub shoulders with others figuratively and literally, and I'm not a big fan of crowds. We were at the, the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree lighting a couple years ago. I've never been in a more crowded place in my life, and I hope to never experience that again. It was like, if something happens, we're all getting trampled, kind of crowded. <clears throat> Holding on to my daughter for dear life. But just think about the woman who reached out and touched Jesus and just the power of God. Think about yourself in that kind of a situation that all the people around you in the world are just clamoring for a place and you have what they need. You have what they need. Your life as touching them has what they need. You know, anointing means to smear, right? The oil of the Holy Spirit. Touch and smear. We want people to be touched, smeared, anointed by our lives, by the way we live, by our testimony, by our countenance. When that happens, people aren't going to be in the world long. All the prophecies we've seen are going to come to pass, and this place is going to be packed to, to the gills, and we won't know what to do with them. Our hands are for anointing. James 5.14, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This is a specific verse for a specific function and we do this as elders, we do this. And, but I want to tell you that as a person in your family, you can do this. You can anoint with oil and I would encourage you to do that. And the prayer of faith will change the, uh, the situation, the circumstance, the person um, anoint your stuff if you have to, right? An anoint your house. Anoint, anoint uh, your, uh, your doorways in your house. Just get to the point where you're, where you're being um, a conduit for God to do what he wants to do through your hands, right? Don't let everything be figurative. Get literal with this stuff. And the only way you're going to get better is by doing it. Acts 8, 17. Our hands are to aid in the release of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Talk about being intentional and, and living on purpose. If there's one thing, and if there's not just one, but if there's one thing we are really desiring to see here is more people filled with the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues, the prayer language of the Spirit, like that needs to be the norm. We're a Pentecostal, charismatic, we're a, we're a people who are Spirit-filled, right? And so, so that should mark us, okay? So if you're out of practice doing that, find someone, find out if they, if they haven't received or not, and say, you know what? The Bible says, Acts 8, 17, then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. It's that simple. Don't make it hard. God wants to give you this gift. Let's, do, you, do you mind if I pray with you right now? I'm going to lay hands on you. And you just tell them what's going to happen. You're going to start praying in another tongue. Just don't, don't worry. It's normal. It's what's supposed to happen. Just get them ready for it. And let's watch 
that happen. At the altars after every service, that, that should be occurring. So we desire to see that. Lord, let it happen. Uh, this Sunday, we're doing Pentecost Sunday. We're doing some Holy Spirit songs. We did that new one tonight. And I love that, that cry for more. I love the last couple ones you did too. I mean, I'm all about that. I just feel like we should be crying out for more and more of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord. You all need to just lay hands on yourself sometimes. Like whatever the deal is. Oh, that pain shouldn't be there. In the name of Jesus, I, I speak life to this body right now in the name of Jesus. Why are you depressed right now? Mind, I have the mind of Christ. Just, just do it. Get, it. get it going, right? I call you healed according to the word of God right now in Jesus' name. I call you encouraged in, in the name of Jesus. You are blessed in the name of Jesus. You have energy in the name of Jesus. You have motivation in the name of Jesus. You are growing deeper in the things of God in the name of Jesus. Touch yourself Touch your body and declare the word of God. I have an anointing from the Holy One, and I know all things, says the word of God. Praise God. Begin to lay hands on yourself as a point of contact. Our hands are created for blessing, Mark 10, 16. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. If you, if you have children, I don't think you could lay hands on them and bless them too much your grandchildren, your spouses, your family members. I do this with Allegra as much as I can. I touch her and I say, Allegra, you're beautiful. You're gifted. You are loved. Did you know you're so amazing? You're so creative. God made you so talented. Allegra, you are growing so much into a young woman of God. See, I'm blessing her. I'm blessing her. I'm blessing her. And dads, they need it from the dad. There's some significance there. It's a whole other teaching. But moms do it. Everybody do it. We need to say what God says about people. And we need to mark it with a touch. Even if it's just a light touch. Whenever I really want to connect with someone, when I'm, pray, when I'm praying with someone, I always make sure, even if it's just a light tap on the shoulder, there's something powerful when that occurs you say their name and touch them on the shoulder and speak the light and life of God into their spirit there's power in touch now there's a warning with that be careful who you touch and be careful who you let touch you you don't want just anybody touching you because there's all kinds of nonsense and there's people that have evil intent and you don't even know it and there's people who don't have evil intent that if they touch you uh, you, better, you better be pray, praying that the power of God is stronger in you than whatever it is that's trying to mess with you, right? So there's power in touch. Just use that with a word of caution. Our hands are for commissioning. Acts 13, 2 through 3. While they were serving the Lord and fasting, I love it, while they were serving the Lord, while they were using their hands in service, while they were fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set Barnabas and Saul apart from me for the work which I call them. Then when they had fasted, prayed, and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. We do this from time to time. It's a serious thing, but we will commission somebody for ministry. We will, we will set hands on them, whether it's an ordination or a licensing, and it's a powerful practice. But again, that's an official thing of the church you can lay hands on your family. You can lay hands on things in your life and commission them. I call you destined to serve the Lord in the name of Jesus as you touch you. Amen. I want to give you a little testimony. I, uh, I shared a lot Sunday. 
um, about laying on hands. A few years back, I walked around my house, which wasn't our house then. It was a rental. We had, God had blessed us. My mother-in-law helped us. She was a realtor at the time, found this beautiful rental house. And a few years ago, a few years ago I walked around it several times and I laid hands on it. I just kept touching the siding just where I could touch it. Um, because I did that because the Lord said to me, I'm going to give you the house. We'd been renting the house since we moved there. And we were trusting the Lord to show us, like, how we could ever get into home ownership again. It had been many years. And we looked at a ton of houses. We had, we had realtors take us. We kept looking. And, and it just either the timing wasn't right or the finances weren't right or everything we looked at compared to what we were in was like, this is terrible. We're going to pay the same thing for this. We got this. And we just never had peace. So this is hilarious. One day, um, our neighbors, they're super awesome. God has put us in the right neighborhood. We have incredible neighbors. He says, come use my pool anytime you want. And for Allegra in the summer, you know, that's a blessing. So I'm floating around on this pool thingy and, and just enjoying the Lord or whatever. I don't know what was happening. All of a sudden, I, I, I spin around and I can see my house. And I just as clear as day, I know, I didn't hear an audible voice, but you know how you just know God just said something? He said, I'm going to give you that house. And I was like, oh, really? Because it doesn't look like it. It doesn't seem like we can do that. So in prompting to that prophetic word, then I went and did a prophetic act. I laid hands and said, I call you our house in Jesus' name. Lord, Lord, you bring this about. I touched it. And so... Um, Times passed, we had broached the subject with our landlord about, you know, trying to buy the house, but it just never seemed uh, to be right. So that day I, I said, Lord, thank you for giving me this house. And I didn't even like make a big deal about telling Christine. I think it was a couple days later. I was just like, yeah, God told us he's given, given us this house. And so that's how that went. But long after that, we went into negotiation with the landlord and, um, and God gave us the house. It was a miracle. We didn't have enough for it. And then, then God just, bam, he made up for this short, shortfall, like miraculously. It was like the 11th hour. And so can, can I just, could you give glory to God for that? So, and we thank God for that house every night in our family prayer. But here's the principle. When God speaks something prophetically to you, there's often a faith action to go with it. And a, a, a lot of times it's laying hands on that. Um, I told, uh, shared with you Sunday, um, if you heard my message Sunday, I told you about the, the trombone that I just got that God, God blessed me with. Well, I don't think I got to go into the detail on that. Well, um, I... Uh, I found this place that will send you several instruments to try. You just have to pay shipping. And so I was willing to do that. And I tried these horns and, and I found the one I knew I liked. And so uh, I just recently had sewn two very precious trombones to these kids in Africa. And so all I had left was my main jazz horn. And like I wasn't going to give that up until I got the new one. And so I was just like, God, I, I really like this trombone. I think it's the one... And my trial period was up, and I had to box them up and send them back. I asked Christine. I was like, isn't there any way we could just buy this? Like, can we put it on the credit card? I mean, it's like, please. No, no, we need to trust the Lord. So I just laid down there on that box and put my hand on that thing and said, Lord, this is my horn. 
This is the one you want for me. I trust you. You're going to bring it, bring it about. I don't, I don't need to do anything to figure it out. I mean, I, I just touched that box and said, I'm sending you out, but you're coming back. You're coming back. And so, so it seemed like forever, but it was only a couple weeks. I decided, why don't I, um, why don't I throw my current jazz trombone up on a Facebook group and see what it'll, it'll fetch, just, just to see. And so I got a couple bites, but it wasn't anywhere near what this new horn was going to be worth. Then all of a sudden, doesn't God do some strange things that you just like, oh, okay, that's not how you did it before. You're going to do it different this way. This guy starts up in his offer, like to the point where I'm like uncomfortable. No, I, I don't think you realize my horn isn't worth that. And I said, uh, I like you. You seem really passionate about this horn. I'll, I, I tell you what, when I'm able to get my new horn, this horn is yours. It's, it's a done deal. And so some time went by and he keeps bugging me. And then I start wondering, is this a scam? Am I going to get, am, am I getting conned here or something? And I just finally, he, he finally says to me, I don't want to reveal too many details. He finally says to me, well, well, how much do you need to buy this new horn? I'm like, okay. It's, and he's like, well, if I gave you, will that get you close enough? And I told my wife and she was like, okay, okay. So I'm still thinking, first of all, I don't want to take advantage of this. Because this is, you know, this. So I said, listen, you, man, you pray about this. Are you sure? Yeah, I love that. I've seen you play it. I've, I saw you play it. I love those horns. I want that horn. I'm willing to give you this. So I spent the night in prayer. I said, you pray on it. T tomorrow, if I have peace, I'll go through with this deal. And I, then I, I did all the investigative. Is this a scam? Is he a real person on Facebook? Um, next day, I said, let's do it. He sends us the money. And did you know that what I got for my old horn was within $78 of the cost of the brand new one? And he paid for shipping. Lord. Now, are you going to lay hands on stuff? Do you think that makes a difference? What if I didn't do that? What if I didn't get serious and say, Lord, I believe. Now, you know, I'm not, don't get weird or, or just go around naming and claiming everything. But for me, that was a God, yes. And I said to him, you know, you send this back to me, Lord, I will use this for your glory. It's for you. So praise God. Praise God. All of it. I'm going to read one final scripture. Really the summary of everything I've been talking about, the opposite of the evil corruption of our hands to shed blood, the purpose of our hands, everything we talked about, it's all for battle for the Lord. Psalm 144, 1. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. All the ways our hands can be used for God's glory are ways that we wage war against the enemy. You know, the enemy didn't want me to be blessed with a new trombone. Because I just got the call today and found out that I'm being asked to go back to Poland in January of 2024. And that is that my horn is a sonic weapon in the realm of the spirit every time I play it for the Lord. And, amen. 
in my, the privacy of my own home and in public when we're on mission trips and we're declaring the light and love of Jesus Christ. So how I many of you know the enemy did not want that? He didn't want me to be blessed. He didn't want me to become a better trombone player. He didn't want me to be more anointed. And so this is, it, it's a weapon. We've got to get to the place where we sense God is divine. He's the divine hand that's guiding and directing our hands. So praise God. We should ask the Lord, what do you want us to set our hand to? Could you just pause in reflection tonight? Just close your eyes and ask him. I hope you're recharged and refreshed about your life as a, as a touch, hand of touch and as your hands literally. Just prayerfully consider, like what in your life needs you to lay hands on it? Go home and do it tonight. Maybe it's your car when you hit the parking lot, whatever. Who in your life do you need to lay hands on? How often do you need to clap your hands in victory to banish the power of darkness? How often do you need to lift up those holy hands in worship? And how much more do you need to participate in the use of your hands in corporate worship? Lord, as, as we ponder the, the questions tonight, I just thank you that you prompt us, that you'll, you'll now remind us what a blessing our hands are. What a tool of, of worship and warfare you've given to us, God. And right now, tonight, in the name of Jesus, I say no. I say no to the enemy for blinding us and for lying to us about the powerful truth of the weapon of worship that we have in our hands, God. And I just make a mandate on this local assembly, Lord, that our hands will be set to the plow and they will not look back, but we will set our hand to the gospel of the kingdom. We will set our hands to changing this region for, the, for Christ Jesus, for the kingdom of God. We will set our hands on people and see them filled with the Holy Ghost, with the evidence of speaking in tongues. We will lay our hands on the sick and they will recover. Our hands will touch and rub with the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the power of darkness will be broken over the lives of those that are lost, the downcast, the down and out. Lord, send them in. We're asking you, God, to trust us to be your hand and guide us by your hand. And we thank you for it tonight. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ Jesus. We receive this as edification, as exhortation tonight, and as a charge and as a challenge. And I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.